0: Seated among us this morning, if you look around, there's a group of people. And I know what some of you people did. There are people with us right here this morning who at some point in their life, they stood before some official body and they pledged that they were willing to give their life to defend the Constitution and the freedom of the United States of America. These are all our people who have chosen to serve in our armed forces. This week, we have the privilege of honoring them as we honor our veterans. So may I ask all of you wonderful souls who have served our country and our veterans of our armed forces, if you would please stand and we give you just a small token of our appreciation, some applause. Veterans, please stand among us, all of you who are here today. Thank you for having, you gave us, you've given us what we, we so enjoy in this country. You're the ones who said you would be willing to give your lives for us, and we're really thankful for you. And thank you for the privilege that we have to honor you this week as we celebrate Veterans Day. Now in a quick uh, switch of gears, I want to turn from the military to sports. In 1986, the World Cup was going on. And the World Cup um, had, it was during the quarterfinals. There were four teams left in our world. And uh, two of these teams, two of the best teams in the world, were Argentina and Britain. And they were in the second half of this game, this very, very important game. And this game featured one of the greatest soccer players that has ever existed. His name was Maradona. He was from Argentina. And in this particular point, in the second half of this game, a ball was hit into the air and Maradona ran toward the ball as did the British goalkeeper. And Maradona hit the ball, well, and the goalkeeper missed it. Maradona scored a goal and it resulted in a winning goal which brought Argentina into the final and they won the World Cup. This is a picture of that head. On the right, you see that's Maradona from Argentina, and on the left is the British goalkeeper. Maradona hit the ball, and it went into the goal. But what the referee did not see was this. If you look, you see Maradona's left hand there? Actually, he punched the ball in with his hand. It did not go off his head. And as you know, that's illegal. You can't do that. But the referee was in such a position that he didn't see the hand, and so he counted it as a goal. Immediately, Maradona and his other teammates knew that he had used his hand, and his teammates weren't cheering. So he went to his teammates. He said, hurry, start cheering, so so the referee won't disqualify it. And the referee didn't. So after the game was over, they had a press conference, And Maradona was asked by the world's press about this particular goal. And this is what he said. Un poco con la cabeza de Maradona y otro poco con la mano de Dios. Translated? A little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. And this has become what has been called the goal of the century. And it's called now the hand of God. Maradona's hand that resulted in Argentina's winning of the World Cup. Now, the hand of God is a common expression. You probably have seen this picture or this portion of the picture painted by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, the hand of God and and Adam. Maybe you've um, seen pictures like this. Of course, this one's uh, an artist's depiction, but the great, huge hand of God controlling the whole universe. Or this is an actual photograph by the Hubble spacecraft, and it is called by the Hubble people the hand of God. And today in our text of Scripture, Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see the whole text is going to surround, be surrounded by the hand of God. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn with me to Daniel chapter 5 and we're going to look at this passage of Scripture which you've probably heard about since for many years if you know anything about the Bible. It's the famous Handwriting on the Wall passage, Daniel chapter 5. Now let me give you a brief Babylonian history lesson so that you understand the context. And by the way, as I've said several times, Daniel is probably the best Um, um, attributed book in the whole Bible with regard to history. We know when things happened, the exact year, and we know for some events, like the event we're going to see today, we know the exact date when it took place. And we don't know this just from the Bible, but it's corroborated by ancient historians like Herodotus. It's found in in, uh, Akkadian as well as um, Babylonian and Persian records. So we know exactly when these events took place. And they're very, very well corroborated. Now, the Babylonian kingdom, though he was not the first king, he's the greatest king of all. His name was Nebuchadnezzar II. He was the king that expanded the empire, who conquered the Assyrians, who brought Daniel into the very top of his administration, and those two were very, very close. After Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom started to fall apart. It fell apart with the next king, of his son, who was executed, who then was followed by Neroglasser. And these, by the way, these people are all mentioned in the Old Testament by different names, but as monarchs often in the ancient world had many names, and they do today as well. They have multiple names. Um, Neroglasser was then succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who lasted only two months when he was executed by a coup, and then Nabonidus took over. Now, Nabonidus was a king who, who didn't like living in Babylon. And so he erected a second palace out in the desert, not in, the, in, in Babylon, and he set his son, whose name was Belshazzar, as the king who resided in Babylon. So at this time you had what are called co-regents, it's not uncommon, where a king would rule for a time with his son as co-regents. Nebonidus ruled out in the countryside or in the desert and Belshazzar ruled in the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon was an incredibly great city, the greatest city in the world at the time, incredibly well fortified completely um, surrounded with the water of the great um, Euphrates River. No problem with water, plenty of sunlight, things grew like crazy. That's where you have the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The biggest palace in the world was there, and it was an incredible city. Belshazzar was in um, Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was out in the desert. However, the Medo-Persian Empire was rising at this particular time under the great leadership of one of the greatest leaders of the Persian Empire, which I think historians say the Persian Empire was the empire in world history that didn't have the largest geographical reach, but had the largest population reach in the history of the world. More of the world's percentage of population were under the Persian Empire than any other. The Persian Empire was on the rise. They were conquering the Babylonian territories, and they defeated Nabonidus who was not in Babylon, and then they proceeded to besiege the city of Babylon. Now remember, the city of Babylon is huge. Thousands of acres, all around this incredibly great wall with multiple little walls and moats around it. A city so great with 100 guard towers around the walls. No one had any fear that the city could ever be conquered. They had food for years inside, and plenty of water. It was at that particular time in 539, that's our date now, and you see the date at the end of Belshazzar, 539, he was executed. He's going to be executed on the very day in which this passage of Scripture takes place. We know this from the Bible, and we know it from ancient Persian records. We're going to start off with Belshazzar, the king, who had very dirty hands. And you'll see why as we look at the Bible. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, remember what? He's inside the palace of Babylon, and the city is under siege. Let's assume that the city of of Sheridan is, um, is a city, and it's got this huge, huge wall around the whole city. Plenty of water, plenty of food, plenty of beautiful buildings, plenty of soldiers. Everything is going really fine inside the city. But the city is completely surrounded by a foreign army. But the worry of Belshazzar that his kingdom could fall was zero. And so while his city is being besieged by a foreign army that has just defeated his father, Belshazzar's throwing a party. A big party. A thousand nobles are at his party. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Remember what happened? King Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, took Daniel as a captive in 605 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar conquered the rest of Israel toppled the temple and took all of the implements from the temple. Now the implements of the temple of God in Jerusalem were made out of gold. Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon, which they often did when they conquered a people. They went into the temple of the people they conquered and took all of their most expensive stuff and brought it to their country and put it in a museum. What did Belshazzar do? He took those implements from God's holy temple, and he said, we're going to use these to party. He said, you guys think you've been drinking out of these nice glass and ceramic goblets? Wonder what your wine tastes like out of gold. And so now they're drinking out of the very, uh, the very cups and other objects from the temple in Jerusalem. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. That's not only bad, but then what are they doing next? As they drank their wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only are they desecrating the sacred objects from God's temple in Jerusalem, but as they're desecrating those objects with their filthy, dirty hands, they're saying, we thank all these idols that have given us this prosperity. Those idols didn't do anything. Those idols are dead as a doornail, and yet they're praising dead things as they're using God's holy objects to drink their wine completely oblivious to what was going on around them. Well, what they didn't know is God saw them. And as they're getting drunk as a bunch of skunks, God is going to intervene. And now they're going to see the hand of God. And they aren't going to like what they see. Here's what the Bible says. Suddenly... Fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Let me stop right there. You see the word plaster up there? They have found it. Archaeologists have found the palace of Belshazzar, and they have found the plaster walls. It didn't have the handwriting on it still, but they found the wall. It's white in color. And if you look at the next line, near the lampstand in the royal palace, so there was a lampstand near a white wall which made whatever was written on that white wall quite visible. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. He's scared spitless. And he should be. Because that's not something you see every day. Maybe people say, hey, he was drunk. How would he even know? He knew what he was seeing, and it scared him. This, by the way, is the painting of Rembrandt of Belshazzar looking at the handwriting on the wall. Now, the king's scared, so in his fear, he's going to make a very handsome offer, and here's his offer. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar. Number two, Belshazzar. Number three, the one who can interpret this handwriting on the wall. Then all the king's wise Guys came in and they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So the big king, Belshazzar, became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So all these people who were trained to do the, the king's bidding and to interpret mysteries, none of them could figure out at all what was going on. And so they decide to call in a handwriting expert. Now, by the way, if you um, look at that handwriting there, if you were reached into your wallet right now and pulled out a couple of bills, you'd see that on there. That's the Secretary of Treasury. I think it's John Liu. That's, isn't that what it looks like to you? <laughs> that's, that's really what it is. It's on your bills. Uh, that would take a handwriting expert to figure out what, what in the world that is. But that's his handwriting. So now... In the realm, there is a handwriting expert. And Belshazzar doesn't know this because he had brought all his advisors in and they don't know what's going on. They don't know squat. But there is a person in the kingdom who's probably the queen mother. And she's not at the party, but she's told about what's happening in the throne room or in the, the banquet hall. And then she comes in. The queen, this is probably the queen mother, someone who's much older, hearing the voices of the kings and nobles came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. They always said that. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Now let me stop there. This is one of the many passages in the Bible that makes me furious at the ignorance of people in our world. Did you remember the, the slide I showed you of the various kings? Is Nebuchadnezzar the father of Belshazzar? No. Who is? Nabonidus. And so people look at and they say, Hey, the Bible's wrong. And I want to go, you are ignorant. One of the most important things you need to remember when you open the Word of God is that it was not written to you. It was written to its original audience. And through that original audience, God, through His Holy Spirit, speaks to us. But if you're going to interpret the Bible aright, the first thing you must do is you must understand what did it mean to the original audience. And in light of that, what does it mean to us? I lived in Africa for three years. And the people in Africa and their culture is remarkably close to the culture of the Bible, and it is remarkably different than our culture. They do not have a word for uncle. Everyone is your father. Father. They don't speak about grandfathers. That's your father. They don't speak about great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. great, 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 great grandfathers. That's your father. If they're your ancestor, they're your father. And so when they say, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, in our society, when you, if you read it through American eyes, you ignoramus, that is not how you should touch the Bible. You have to read it through their eyes. When they say, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, they go, of course that's what it means. You always call your father the greatest person in your genealogy. That's your father. Said your father, your father Nebuchadnezzar. He was the there was under his time a man who was over all of these wise men of your kingdom. His name was Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. He was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. Now, the queen had a historical memory. She would have been alive probably while Nebuchadnezzar was still alive. And she said, I know none of your people can understand this writing, but there is someone in the kingdom who can. Call him. Now, let's check your math sense. Do you remember from some some weeks ago we said when Daniel was taken a captive at about age 15, the year was 605 BC? So, what year approximately was Daniel born? If Daniel was taken as a captive at 15 years of age in 605, what year was Daniel born? 620. Thank you. we got some mathematicians. I heard young voices. Yay, Michael. Thank you. we got some young people alive here today. They know their math. So he was born about 620. Now, this date we know from all records is 539. How old is Daniel? <laughs> really old. <laughs> How old? He's about 80 years old. Now, Daniel... Having served as a young man under Nebuchadnezzar and as a middle-aged man was probably after his time as the kingdom started to decline, put out to pasture. He was a well-known figure, but he was not utilized by these dumb leaders who followed Nebuchadnezzar. But the queen mother, who had a historical memory about what he had done under the time of their greatest leader, said, this man is the guy you gotta call. But he's now an old man around 80 years of age. And so they called Daniel. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. There's the offer he makes. And now Daniel's going to say, you, O king, are guilty of biting the very hand that feeds you. Now, as you know, Daniel is one of the prophets of God. They have said that the main definition of a prophet is not somebody that tells the future. That is one of their small jobs. The main job of a prophet is to speak the truth to powerful people. That's the main job of a prophet. If there was a prophet among us today, their main job is not to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but their point is, a prophet usually puts their finger on people's sin. Now, if you put your finger on people's sin, and the person's sin you're putting your finger on happens to be very rich and powerful, they don't like it. And that's why most prophets don't have real nice lives. Almost all the prophets were killed because they had the audacity for God to speak the truth to people in power. And that's what Daniel is about to do. He's going to tell King Nebuchadnezzar, keep uh, King Belshazzar that you, unlike your father Nebuchadnezzar, you are guilty of biting the hand that has fed you. And God is going to judge you for it. And so here's what Daniel says. Then Daniel answered the king, Now, remember from earlier chapters when Daniel spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar, how he began his speech to him? Oh, king, live forever. But not this time. Because, you see, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they were very close. And by God's grace, God turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to be a God-fearing king who we will one day see in heaven. But this guy is not that way. He's an arrogant cuss so daniel says i can't be bought keep your junk for yourself you can keep your gifts you can give your rewards to someone else but i will read the writing the king tell and tell you what it means o king The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with, drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over anyone He wishes. You. You know, what Nebuchadnezzar did. Every person in this kingdom, and especially the royal family, you know what the greatest king did. You know. He was an arrogant cuss, just like you are. But God got Nebuchadnezzar to, to be humbled, to see that the God of heaven is the true God, and he humbled himself. You knew that. And what did you do with that knowledge? You stuck it in the face of the living God by drinking out of the vessels from that very God's temple. And you think you can get away with it? You're dead wrong. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew it. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver. You praised idols instead of the living God who you should have known because you knew what your father, the greatest Nebuchadnezzar, had done. You knew that. And instead, you spend your time worshiping objects that cannot hear, they cannot see, they cannot understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Can you imagine saying that to a king? That'll get you killed. But Daniel's 80. He doesn't care. He says, hey... Well, what he's going to say is that hand that's written on the wall <coughs> is declared that your end is at hand. Here's what Daniel said. This is the inscription that was written. meeny, take tekel, farson. Now those f- four words are three. There are actually three words. The first one repeated twice are three nouns. They're actually monetary units. They're like a $10 bill, $5 bills, and a half a dollar. And uh, the the enchanters and other people in in Belshazzar's kingdom couldn't understand what they said. But Daniel knew what the words were, three nouns that are used as participles, and then he knew what they meant. So now he's going to interpret the meaning. This is what these words mean, meaning. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. He says that twice. Tickle, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting, and this is the half dollar. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That's what it means. Now, that's not a real fun message to hear, but that's what Daniel said. Basically, what he said is the hand of God's judgment is about to fall on you and your kingdom. And do you know when it fell? That very day. And we know the day. It's in October, 539 BC. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Isn't that great? That's horrible. Can you imagine? Now, Daniel gets to walk around the town Babylon because it's going to fall that night, dressed in purple with gold around his neck, and say, Hey, I'm number three. That'll get you killed. So the very thing Daniel didn't want, the king gives him, because the king's an idiot. And um, so here's what happens. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Remember I told you that the armies of the Medes and the Persians under the direction of the great, great leader Cyrus had circled the city. It was an impregnable city. They couldn't get in. They never worried. But Cyrus was a pretty smart general. He went upriver on the Euphrates. They dammed up the river, stopped the water, and came, walked right in under the walls, right into the city. And it was conquered in a bloodless coup. It was partly conquered because of the great military strategy of the Persians. But the main reason was that Belshazzar was such a horrible leader, mistreating his people, having big parties while the people were besieged, that the people were glad to get rid of him. How do I know that? This is how we know it. I've seen that device. It's in the British Museum. It's only nine inches long. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's only this big, but there are it's like a small book on there. It's Akkadian cuneiform writing, and there are people who have read it, and uh, I'm going to read to you part of it. I can't read this at all, but I've, I can read English. Here's what it says, a little portion of it. I am Cyrus, king of the world. When I entered Babylon, I did not allow anyone to terrorize the land. In other words, he did not permit his soldiers to take advantage of the people. I kept in view the needs of the people and all its sanctuaries. He didn't defile the temples to promote their well-being. I put an end to their misfortune. The great God has delivered all the lands into my hand, the lands that I have made to dwell in peaceful habitation. That's part of the writing on the Cyrus cylinder. Again, as there are hundreds of these corroborating what the Bible says. So Cyrus came in and took over the kingdom in a bloodless coup because the people were glad to have him there. And now, without bloodshed, he took over the kingdom of Babylon. And he is the one who then allowed the Jewish people to return to their ancestral homeland and take with them the implements from the temple when they rebuilt now the second temple by Zerubbabel and Ezra back in Jerusalem. King King Belshazzar now had fallen into the hands of the living God. Why? Because though he had been well warned, he knew exactly what it meant to resist God and he knew what it meant to follow God and to humble himself before God. He chose not to do so. And he found himself Falling into the hands of the living God who in his case was a God of judgment. Not a pleasant way to go. I'd like to end by asking you, have you ever experienced the hand of God in your life? What might it look like? I think it might look like some of the very things we found in this passage of Scripture. Have you ever had uh, dirty hands? I don't mean maybe get them full of mud, but Hands where you've played with sacred things which you shouldn't have done. and You end up with dirty hands. Have you ever experienced a slap on the hands? A slap on the hands is a gift from God because when you get a slap on the hands, that kind of protects you from things that are much bigger worse. I've had many slaps on my hands. I remember as a child, I... I I had a problem, many problems, but one of my problems, I shoplifted. And I got caught once. And it was a slap on the hands. I was so scared, I never did it again. And I realized that was God's gift to me because that slap on the hands scared me. And maybe you've had a slap on the hands. And maybe, have you seen it as maybe God's kindness to keep you from something worse? Sometimes he writes his will. The main place God has written his will is on his, in his word when we read the Bible. But sometimes God writes, hand writes his will in other ways. Now the problem is that there are many handsome offers that come from our world. Just like the offer that Belshazzar said, hey, if you can read this, I'll make you the third highest in the kingdom and I'll give you all kinds of money. And we say, yeah, I'll take the money. Daniel said, not on your life. I don't want your money. I'm going to follow God. But you see, the world is making all kinds of handsome offers to us. And many times we we take them only to realize they're empty and very cheap. Have you ever bitten the hand that feeds you? I think it's ironic. We live in a world when something bad happens, a disaster happens. We call it an act of God. But 99% of the time, good things happen, and we never call those an act of God. Those are us. When good things happen, that's me. When bad things happen, that's God. That's stupid. That's horribly ungrateful. Do we ever bite the very hand that feeds us? Because the truth is, God is feeding us all the time. And oftentimes we respond to His kindness with biting His hand. Have you ever experienced the good hand of God in your life? I have many times. I could tell story after story of how very important things in my life have happened because I've seen God's hand working through circumstances of life to direct the path of my life. I've experienced the good hand of God. Has God ever put into your life a handwriting expert? Like a Daniel, who is willing to tell you the truth, speak truth, to power. And when God puts those wonderful people into your life, do we listen to them? Maybe they're handwriting experts. They're trying to interpret or they're trying to be used by God to help us to follow His way. But the most important hands of all are the hands we actually sang about today. They're a pair of hands that have big scars in them. Because there were nails that were through those hands. It said that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, it wasn't the nails that kept them there, him there. It was the, his love for us. If he had wanted, the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels. But he died alone for you and for me. The most important hands of God are the hands that have got those nails in them. And they always look like this, opened wide. Whosoever will may come. They're hands of grace. And the most important thing we could ever do in life is to respond to those hands. These are just some of the ways, but the most important is to come to the cross, as we have celebrated this day through communion. And so, As you think about hands, maybe you can answer the question of which of these portions of hands from Daniel chapter 5 most (coughs) apply to you. Maybe God's Spirit can change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for, for your kindness, your power, your goodness, and Your holiness. Somehow you put them all together beautifully. It's sad to see what happened for those who don't accept your goodness. But this day, Heavenly Father, we are the people who have seen your goodness and we have heard about those outstretched hands of Jesus. And I pray that as a people here this day, we not only would gratefully receive but also in line with those nail pierced hands go and tell thank you for Jesus thank you for those hands that, with which he died on the cross for my sins and the hands that say whosoever will may come I pray heavenly father that everyone in this building will come and will find your grace is sufficient for all. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand with me and let me give you just a word of blessing as you go. May God bless you and keep you. May you experience somehow the face of God shining on you and the hands of Jesus embracing you. May you leave this place and be filled with God's peace. Amen.